One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite historians to get into an apocalyptic fury. The podcast where our history community delivers mutually assured destruction of what we think is history. I am your public historian Paul Bavel, and I am here, as ever, with my good friend and fellow nuclear nihilist, Kyle Glover. Hello. And we've got a bonus episode for you today, in addition to our regular programming. A sudden interruption by the emergency broadcast system, if you will. So today, we're going to mark both a very auspicious week in history and also a month in history in which we came the closest to nuclear war. And to do this, we welcome the head of Cold War and late 20th century history at Imperial War Museum, Duxford, Paris Agar. Paris, welcome to History Rage. Thank you so much. I'm really excited. Feeling angry? Uh, yes, I'm getting there. Good. I'm not an angry person, you know, but I can I can get a rage on if you want me to. Hey, so challenge accepted. We, <laughs> we, we have broken calmer people than you. So, when I think of Duxford, I'm thinking mostly of aircraft and mostly of the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight, even though I know they're based at Koenigsby, but you just can't help but make yeah. that association. Uh, but I'm sure there's a bigger picture. So, can you tell us about IWM Duxford, what you'd find there, and what your role is, and how you came to be there. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm the head of Cold War and late 20th century conflict at Imperial War Museums. And yeah, as you say, I'm based at IWM Duxford, which is uh, just outside Cambridge in Cambridgeshire. And yeah, most people would associate it with aircraft and vehicles and tanks, but it's got a lot more on offer. There's a mile-long runway of hangars full of collections. So yes, we have large objects, but we also have incredible personal stories that go along with those. As well as uh, the hangars that, that span from the First World War to the present day, we also have the American Air Museum, which is absolutely full of American-based aircraft. Mm. Um, we, have, uh, we touch on the Cold War in there as well, including the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's something to, to visit this year. So IWM Duxford is one of five sites within Imperial War Museums and, and IWM as a whole is kind of set up in the First World War to, to tell stories about the causes and the course and the, and the consequences of conflicts. It's not to glorify war, it's, it's very much about the personal stories. So you have Duxford, you have our site in London, um, you have 
HMS Belfast, which is moored on the Thames. You have Churchill War Rooms in London, but you also have IWM North, which is in Salford as well. So we're kind of dotted all around the country. But I, as you say, am, am mainly based at Duxford. I actually specialise in our art collection. Not many people know that we have an incredible art collection of over oh, 90,000 objects. Me for objects. one. Yeah. So um, it, it covers, you know, prints, paintings, photographs, but also installations, digital work, sculpture. Um, so I concentrate on the Cold War period for that. So from 1949 all the way to 2000. So I've got quite a remit. And uh, yeah, I love what I do. And uh, as I was saying um, before we started recording, I'm based in Yorkshire. But I commute all the way to Duxford and that's how much I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I barely commute 14 miles to my office without grumbling. <laughs> but then again, I don't have an office with all those hangers full of stuff. Yeah, very, very lucky. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I concentrate on the art collection, but what I'm actually working on at the moment with colleagues is, is commemorating these important anniversaries this year. So it's the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's the 70th anniversary of the first British nuclear tests. So what we're doing is we're kind of focusing our programming around our Handley Page Victor, which is on display in Duxford, um, and we're a true Cold War icon. Um, we're also um, getting a new kind of um, installation in the American Air Museum at Duxford, concentrating on reconnaissance photographs taken by U2 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And we are also doing lots of online content, so new digital videos on our YouTube channel. So lots going on this year. Excellent, exciting stuff. So you mentioned there the uh, the kind of things that the museum's commemorating this year, which leads us very neatly into today's rage. So I know everybody uh, out there will be wondering what on earth we've interrupted regular programming for. What could be so anger-inducing? Would you please, Paris, tell our angry mob of history ragers what you wish people would just stop believing? Absolutely, yeah. So I want people to just stop believing that only two nuclear bombs have been detonated since 1945. So those two bombs that I am focusing on are the American bombing of the Japanese cities of Hiroshima on the 6th of August 1945 and Nagasaki on the 9th of August 1945. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think most people do concentrate on those two as being the only nuclear bomb detonations that have happened. But my rage is that actually over 2,000 detonations have happened since then, um, which wow. is a, a, a huge amount, you know, worldwide, not just involving America, the Soviet Union in the Cold War context and Britain, but other countries, including France, China, Pakistan, India, etc. So that's what I'm really wanting to talk about today. OK, thank you. So 2,000? Yes, over to. It's a wonder we've got a world left. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, th- this is the thing: is they are test destinations rather than military. So the two over Japan, um, which was a pivotal moment, obviously during the Second World War, um, were the only two actually done during a, an operational warfare context. Yeah. But then, ever since then, it has been uh, in the testing context. So um, obviously, the the two nuclear bombs that were detonated over Japan resulted in unbelievable numbers of of casualties and did act as that kind of turning point towards the end of the Second World War. Um, America felt as though it had its hands tied along with its allies that that's the only thing that could result in an unconditional surrender 
of Japan. Um, I mean, you know, the, the debate on that it still continues, uh, and that's for another discussion. But it was just before then, just a month before, on the 16th of July, that the very first nuclear test took place. So that was America's test through the Manhattan Project in New Mexico. And that ushered in the nuclear age, really. And then just a, just a month later, you had these Japanese bombings. Okay. Am I right in thinking as well that there are actually, I think it's, is it three nuclear bombs that are detonated during, not near, during the Cuban Missile Crisis? <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, you're right. So... The the nuclear testing really did spark from the end of the Second World War because the, the obviously the Allies um, had a victory against the Nazi regime, but then the uh, Britain, America, and its other allies, um, including the Soviet Union, had kind of come together against that regime. But then after the Second World War, the kind of underlying tensions came to the fore, and this is why you had the the separation of the Soviet Union and and America uh, along with Britain splitting along ideological lines. But what America had done is kind of shown its hand with releasing its superweapon. It was then hugely concerned that the Soviet Union knew that they had this weapon and that it would develop its own. Mm. So, you know, there was underlying fear that spies would, you know, uh, spies would be able to get the kind of scientific information required to build their own bomb. So, what happened was a continued amount of testing throughout the 1950s and into the early 1960s uh, to ensure that uh, they were kind of on top of their nuclear technology game. Uh, and this, this, in ha- this kind of escalated to the race that we now know, the nuclear race between America and the Soviet Union. But yeah, as you say, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, these, these tests are still going on, which is just terrifying to think of. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's absolutely the last time you yeah. want, you actually want a nuclear bomb to go off. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, th- this is it. We The world held its breath over those 13 days during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, and to think that these tests were still happening. And, and e- even at that point, the fallout from the tests, the impact of that was still not known. You know, so um, to to think that it could have happened in in the natural military context is is horrifying. Yeah, this isn't day. it just? I swear, I think uh, again, I may be wrong on this, but I understand that the uh, the Soviets actually launched a space rocket again during the missile, Cuban Missile Crisis from an actual Soviet missile base. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, th- this is the thing: is um, it, it's not isolated. Um, we we kind of think of it like that in terms of Cold War history. We think this happened in this location at this point, but actually it's all happening at once. And it's not it's not happening just um, in terms of atmospheric concern, but it's happening underwater. It's happening in space at the same time as you say. There's the space race going on, which is kind of like a a parallel battle between the superpowers as to who's going to achieve what. Um, it is a very unstable time. Yeah, it it just always makes me laugh that they'd launch that space rocket at that point because if you're sitting yeah. in America at a tracking station watching something launch from a missile base that looks missile shaped, yeah, everything uh, is going to be put on hold, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no di- there is very little difference between your space rocket and an ICBM. No, definitely. Yeah, but yeah. Buzz Aldrin first went into space at the top of a Titan II missile, effectively. Mm. Just yeah. Replace a warhead with a casual. 
Good Lord. Yeah. It doesn't even bear thinking about. <laughs> so we've talked a bit about the United States and the Soviet Union, but what was Britain's involvement in the development and the testing of nuclear weapons? Yeah, so Britain had been involved right from the start of the Second World War, actually. And, and you know, not many people know this, but they were looking at the kind of feasibility of creating an atomic bomb, uh, looking at nuclear fission to do this, right from 1940. And a group of scientists were set up, which is called the Maud Committee. Mm-hmm. And essentially their, their task was basically to look at the feasibility of doing this. And then they released a, a report a year later, so 1941, that said, yep, yeah, we, can, we can do this. So, so the viability of an atomic weapon was right there in, in the kind of mid-stages of the Second World War. Then it was released into a more formal programme called Tube Alloys, um, which was kind of tasked, a group of scientists were tasked to kind of take this feasibility and make it a, a reality. But if you think about Britain at that stage in the Second World War, it was under bombing um, from Germany. Mm-hmm. It was not I- the ideal place for this kind of development of nuclear technology, which was is obviously very unstable by its very nature. And so they looked to their American allies to be able to kind of combine their nuclear uh, technology and development and thinking. And so in 1943, this was formalised in the Quebec Agreement. So uh, the US and the UK came together and said, OK, Tube Alloys now becomes part of the existing Manhattan Project, and they were combined. So you had British and American scientists working together towards this common goal. And this this was kind of set up mainly because they thought that uh, Nazi Germany were actually developing their own nuclear uh, weapons. But actually, on reflection, we now know that it wasn't as, as advanced as what the Manhattan Project was actually uh, mm doing. So, as I said earlier, the first test was on the 16th of July, 1945, and, and then this resulted in the, in the Japanese bombings. But then, after the Second World War, America kind of took a, a bit of a st- step back, because it was so scared of, of spies getting hold of that information. It actually severed ties with Britain. And even though Britain had been involved with nuclear technology right from the start, they didn't actually know how to make an atomic bomb themselves. And so they were kind of in this position of, okay, well, America has an atomic bomb. Do we let them be the only Western nation to be the only aggressor on the world stage? Or do we develop our own? Yeah. And if you think about post-war Britain, you know, this is a time of austerity. You're looking at uh, reconstruction. You're still looking at rationing. But it was still a priority for the Labour government to develop this nuclear technology. And and they went for it, and it was it was called high explosive research. Good code word. I know, isn't it? You know, considering it yeah. was actually kept secret at that point, it was still a secret uh, endeavor because it was costing millions of pounds. And these, you know, this was against the priorities of of the British population, essentially. You know, on the ground. Yeah, I mean, this is a time where they're actually under more rationing than they were in the Second World War because bread had been rationed since the end. Yeah, and new rationing was introduced. You know, so. Then High Explosive Research was then based at Aldermaston in, in Berkshire and was kind of codenamed the, the Bomb Factory. And then this is, uh, over the next couple of years, Britain was focusing on developing their own atomic bomb, filling in the gaps in their knowledge, essentially, from what they hadn't been involved with during the Manhattan Project. So by 1952, they had developed their own bomb and, and released it during tests known as Operation Hurricane. 
So if we think of nuclear testing, certainly American yeah. nuclear testing, I think of Bikini Atoll and yeah. I think of Las Vegas and selling tickets to watch the bombs go off in the Mojave Desert. Yeah. Which is um, if a terrifying I, thought. Yeah, if I think of, <laughs> honestly, just look for the, just, anybody out there that's listening, just Google Miss Atomic Bomb 1951. There was an actual <laughs> beauty contest about it. But yeah, that's where I think of, uh, for America, but where do British nuclear tests take place? I mean, we can't be doing it on the mainland. We haven't got the room. No, we haven't got the room and they don't know the impact of the fallout. So they are looking for somewhere in 1952 where it's somewhere uninhabited, um, but it's easy to get to by, by sea. It's also going to have the ability to kind of clear lots of area of land for the testing, uh, for the preparation beforehand and for the measuring of any radiation fallout. So they're looking globally and Britain uh, turns to its kind of Commonwealth ally in Australia and has identified the Maralinga Islands just 80 miles off the coast of northwest Australia as it's uninhabited. And Australia agree to this mm. and say, yeah, you can use those islands for this type of testing. There is nobody living there. And also they had a kind of vested interest because nuclear technology was not just for weapons, but also for energy. And they thought that potentially, you know, the willingness to, to work with Britain on this would result in nuclear energy for its population. That actually never happened, but at the time they thought it might do. So this is where the the series of tests as part of Operation Hurricane took place, the very first tests. That, that we associate with any any testing or the launch of the Japanese bombs, for instance, by air, but this very first test was actually uh, detonated on board a ship called HMS Plym, which was moored in a lagoon in the Maralinga Islands. So this was a, a kind of discontinued ship mm -hmm. and they placed the bomb in the hull and then um, it exploded. It, 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 um, it left a crater six metres deep and 30 metres wide in the seabed. So this was a huge, huge explosion. But what happened from that very detonation was Britain then became the third nuclear power after America and Soviet Union. Soviet Union had launched theirs in 1949. If we are looking then at a 30 meter crater in the seabed yeah. i mean how far above the seabed was this ship when that bomb goes off yeah so the the, the ship itself is is moored on the on the sea surface the um, explosion then goes below the seabed but then also upwards mm. um, for miles and this this is the terrifying thing was that the actual effects of the explosion is this is the first mushroom cloud that you know britain had seen yeah. from its own making and, you know, it's, it's miles high, but what you see is not the actual impact of the explosion. It is, you know, invisible radiation uh, fallout. And that, that's the kind of horrifying thing. I mean, we're talking things like tsunamis and other things as a result of that test? Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. The, the, the sea itself is displaced. The, Australia, even though they had agreed to the tests, then what happened was the fallout then went over the main, over mainland Australia and affected indigenous populations on the mainland. So even though the islands were inhabited, it spread across there. Yeah, um, that eighty know, miles away as well. Yeah, exactly. So that that is showing that is showing the spread. Uh, marine life um, for miles around died 
birds fell out of the sky on fire. Uh, you know, this, this, these are the really horrifying effects of what's going on here. And then if you think about the servicemen on the ground, this, you know, that's uh, the effects are still ongoing today. Yeah. And then, and then that's the start. That's before we develop any advancements, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. This, this is uh, atomic. This is before we get to thermonuclear. So this may seem like a daft question, but just to make sure we're all exactly on the same page here, what actually is the difference between an atomic bomb and a nuclear bomb or a hydrogen bomb? What are the differences between these terms? Yeah, absolutely. So so what we what we term as nuclear encompasses both of those. It encompasses atomic and it encompasses H bomb. So H bomb is another word for thermonuclear. So atomic bomb is the first technology that we're experiencing. Atomic bombs were detonated over Japanese cities in 1945. They are made from nuclear fission. So so that's breaking atoms up essentially, put in the simplest terms. But thermonuclear is actually combining atoms together, so pushing them together, which creates a lot more energy and results in a, a, a bigger explosion, a, a bigger yield, mm. um, which is makes for a, a better weapon. But in terms of when we're talking about testing and what we've just said in terms of the effect of even an atomic bomb, which has a much less yield, you're looking at a, a hu- huge, a huge impact. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You mentioned that we got into this at the start of the Second World War. Yeah. Okay, and there were studies and there were feasibility studies. And two years later, we decide this is a goer. Let it go over to the Americans. So what advancements did we actually need to develop to make atomic and nuclear weaponry as viable weaponry options? What did we need to be able to achieve that we couldn't at the start and had to actually research and develop? So I'll just talk a little bit about the British advancement in thermonuclear energy and then I'll and then I'll say how that kind of develops into how we actually deliver these yeah. nuclear weapons. So the first uh, nuclear testing in terms of atomic energy is 1952. Then America and the Soviet Union successfully test thermonuclear, so H-bombs. Britain is wanting to be still the third nuclear power. And so the scientists based at Aldermaston are tasked with creating their own H-bomb within a very short uh, period of time, without without knowledge of the technology, because America is still kind of split from Britain at that time in terms of sharing its uh, information. Um, so in 1957, 
British scientists actually crack it and Britain's first thermonuclear H-bomb is, is tested. Now, these are uh, tested over Christmas Island and Malden Island in the Pacific. And these are, instead of being called Operation Hurricane, these are called Operation Grapple. So these are a series of uh, both atomic and thermonuclear tests. And this basically shows America Britain's salt, if if you will. So America is saying, OK, so Britain can develop their own and um, what we've actually got here is a race between the three of us with the Soviet Union. And um, so what we'll do is we'll we'll develop a better relationship with Britain and we'll combine our efforts. So in 1958, there is another uh, agreement. So the US-UK Mutual Defence Agreement, which kind of is an amendment to the 1946 McMahon Act, which is severed ties. This now brought Britain and, and America back together and kind of formed a special relationship. So that meant that thermonuclear weapons could then be developed by both parties. Mm -hmm. Now, if we're thinking about how these weapons were actually made viable, you you can't have a weapon made viable unless you have the technology to make it work and the willingness to push the proverbial nuclear button. Yeah. So this is what led to MAD, you know, mutually assured destruction. So that meant that if one nation had triggered nuclear war, the other would retaliate. So this made for a situation where both East and West Prepared, prepared like an arsenal of weapons which could result in the worst war the world had seen. Um, but at the same time, what they're doing is everything in their power to make it not get to that stage. So this, this is where you kind of the concept of nuclear deterrence is born. Mm-hmm. So nuclear deterrence does present technological challenges. So jet bombers were needed to carry and deliver heavy nuclear weapons at long range, high altitudes and speed. Now, this led to the development of what is called the V-bombers or the V-force. So this was Britain's strategic nuclear strike force in the 1950s. This consists of the Vickers Valiant, the Avro Vulcan and the Handley Page Victor. So protecting the V-bombers and protecting kind of V-bomber airfields from Soviet attack came in the form of English electric lightnings. So they had just been developed to, to form that kind of interceptor role and surface-to-air missiles. So, essentially, what the role of the V-bombers were was to take these incredible nuclear weapons into the airspace of of Soviet Union and deliver a huge payload. But if this actually came to fruition, that meant that the land that they had just left would no longer be there when they when they went back so this those pilots had a a terrifying role you know how how do you live like that i i don't know you know we yeah. have the most incredible histories in the collection of of valiant victor and and vulcan pilots who talk about the fact that if they actually had to do their job that they were made to do they wouldn't have a home to go back to so this this was the situation that they were they were living in so um the V-bomber bomb bays themselves were actually designed to, to carry a free-fall bomb, which was called Blue Danube. And this was essentially the UK's first deterrent. So it would open its bomb bays and it would it would fall out uh, over the Soviet Union, was the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, like a the traditional first... air raid yeah, would exactly. do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this, this the first test of that took place in October 1956, and that was a part of Operation Buffalo. And this was a series of tests in, in Maralinga in southern Australia. So again, another area of Australia that was kind of had all of these tests 
put on them, including the the subsequent fallout. So uh, a Vickers Valiant from 49 Squadron was given this job, and it was it still remains the only aircraft that's actually dropped a live atomic weapon as part of these tests. So if if you imagine V-bombers from this time, a lot of people listening might associate them with their anti-flash white colour and wonder why they might be be painted like this as opposed to camouflage that you're kind of normally associated aircraft mm-hmm. with. But that was kind of to absorb the thermonuclear radiation, it was thought, to protect the aircraft and protect the crew inside. So that's why they're white at this time. So they could at least get back to that home that was no longer there. Yeah, yes. yeah exactly. How thoughtful. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and throughout the 60s, so if you think about Blue Danube, we then moved to what's called the Blue Steel Missile. And this, this was um, Britain's main nuclear deterrent during the Cold War. So th- this was this was better in terms of, if you think about Blue Danube being free fall, that mm. actually makes the V-bombers really vulnerable to attack. Whereas what happened with the Blue Steel was it could be launched from a standoff position, as it was called. So it could be released in the aircraft and then actually it flew like a kind of flight, like a like a, its own plane, really, yeah. to then be launched elsewhere. So it protected the V-bombers a little bit better. Yeah, because I suppose shooting the V-bomber down doesn't stop the bombs coming out. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it would still be able to, to fly on its own, like a pilotless plane. Um, but it, However, it, didn't, it had limited range, and it wasn't very reliable. So by the time it entered service into the 60s, it, it actually was, was pretty useless, especially in terms of in relation to other technology that was happening, especially in America. So because Britain had then developed more of a, a relationship again with its American allies, with this special relationship, Britain turned to them, essentially, and said, we don't have the, the nuclear deterrent that we would want to. We don't feel as though it's viable enough. And so Britain struck a deal with America to have uh, Skybolt missiles. And it got to the point where some of the, the Vulcan fleet was actually changed to to kind of house this bigger missile than what the Blue Danube and the Blue Steel were. But again, advancements in technology, unreliability led to Skybolt being cancelled. Mm-hmm. So Britain had to rely on this unreliable flightless plane of Blue Steel throughout the 60s. So, you know, if you're thinking about viability, we still had a nuclear deterrent to hold our place within that mad, you know, MAD situation with the Soviet Union. But actually, you know, it, was, it wasn't the best option. No. So then what you get by 1968 is Britain striking a deal with America for Polaris, which is a, a whole other kettle of fish. So what you have then is a, a submarine-launched nuclear weapon. And this meant that if you had got to the situation where the Soviet Union had destroyed land-based nuclear force a nuclear weapon could still be launched and that can be anywhere can't it and that can be anywhere so the the, up to 16 missiles polaris missiles were on five resolution class submarines uh during from from 1968 right up until 1994 so that was britain's main nuclear deterrent american made missiles but Britain later made the warhead that was called Chevaline, which meant that it was a kind of better in terms of penetrating any anti-ballistic missiles. So that's basically um, how Britain remained viable during this nuclear deterrence height period, really, during the Cold War. 
we've made so we made the the warhead Chevrolet there. Did yeah. we ever make our own kind of long range ballistic missiles or were we because I I kind of grew up in the whole midst of like Green and Common protests and things like yes. that and American missiles yeah. on uh, yeah. on British soil. Did we ever make our own? Yeah, we certainly tried. Yeah, we tried through Blue Streak as it was known. They like so we blue, had, don't they? Yeah, they do like blue. So we have blue Danube, we have blue steel, and we have blue streak. And at IWM Ducks, we actually have a rocket motor left from, from blue streak. It never actually made it into circulation. It was cancelled because, again, American options were better. And, you know, we, we were in a still in a period in the UK where we were cutting our defence budgets. And so justifying making our own was ever harder. Yeah. You know, throughout throughout the 60s so you know making a deal in terms of getting a limited number from the americans was was always a better option yep so as we've been going through we've been gasping and been horrified by some of the things we're talking about what was the global reaction to nuclear testing and do nuclear tests still take place yeah so the successful testing of both atomic and thermonuclear thermonuclear in particular horrified the world and, you know, made the Cold War period terrifying. And people were living under what was known as the shadow of the bomb, this yeah. period of anxiety where people were, were, were terrified every day of their lives of, of this hugely monstrous weapon that could come and destroy them and the, everybody that they loved. And so what you had is on a kind of more official level, and political level, you had a series of, of summits and meetings that tried to prevent uh, all-out nuclear war, essentially. And the first main ones of these was in 1963. So this was the, the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which banned testing in the atmosphere, in outer space and underwater. And this was signed by Britain, Soviet Union and uh, the United States. And it, it hasn't actually been signed by everybody to this day, but it, it was signed by those three main nuclear powers at that time, which was the pivotal moment, really. Interesting to note here that testing can still take place underground and and has done still until recently. And the effects of that are obviously not as bad in terms of radiation fallout, but are still really quite impactful in terms of um, the the crater that it causes underground and and the the um, amount of miles that it covers. Um, but Wait, sorry, where where on earth would you test a nuclear weapon underground? Um, it has happened all all over the world. So so North Korea have tested them underground on their own on their own nuclear test sites. So yeah, it, it does it does happen. But the the main point of this agreement was to stop atmospheric testing mm-hmm. because this is what people would were terrified of were those effects. So uh, what you had is is very much a period of escalation avoidance with these many, many summits, these many meetings between essentially the two superpowers um, to kind of prevent, try and prevent this. Alongside this, so that's the kind of more official political angle. Alongside this, you had the people on the ground protesting against it. And, yeah. and mainly this was through the campaign of nuclear disarmament, the, the CND, and that was set up as early as 19, 1957. I think their first meeting was early in 1958. And they had a, a huge membership and, and they, they um, had protests and marches all over the country. 
and they marched to Oldermarsen where that bomb factory was, where the, the scientists were creating this technology. You know, right up until 1994, Polaris is still based at Oldermarsen, creating those Chevalier warheads. So it's still very much in, in Berkshire, the, the place to, to kind of um, campaign against this sort of thing. But what, once that 1963 agreement came in to, to stop atmospheric testing, their membership actually fell. But um, you mentioned Greenham Common earlier, you know, in the 1980s, you had talks of American cruise missiles being based in Britain, and that this started groups like um, the Women's Peace Camp at Greenham Common, where you had people protesting against this happening. And so then you saw a resurgence again with the membership of, of the CND, to people not wanting this to be mm-hmm. happening in Britain, and, and, and you had over 100,000 people on their membership. And now the CND obviously still exists, and it and it, Polaris was eventually replaced by Trident, which is America's uh, nuclear deterrent, which we we bought a, a kind of stockpile of. They are now uh, they are our at sea deterrents, and the CND campaigns against those because it campaigns for uh, the end of nuclear technology, that uh, and that spans not just from, to weapons but also to energy. And they also campaign against NATO because they feel as though that alliance brings uh, to the fore the requirement for a deterrent. Last question, then, to kind of wrap things up. What have been the lasting effects of 2,000 nuclear detonations on uh, on the test locations that, that they were at? Yeah, so th- this is where we go back to our rage, really, isn't it? Because, you know, if if people only think that we have detonated two nuclear weapons from 1945 to the present day, whereas actually there have been over 2,000 detonated through testing, and the, the, the knowledge and the research of, of the effect of those tests is still unknown and, and still kind of not restituted, this is this is the underlying rage there. So if you think back to the, the tests of the 1950s on the Montebello Islands and elsewhere in Australia, the effects certainly weren't financial, you know, just financial. They, they cost over £150 million, the Operation Hurricane tests, billions of pounds in today's money. But mm. in terms of the effects on the servicemen and the indigenous populations of Australia, not just those who are present in the tests, but from generations onwards, it the, the effects were horrifying, the health effects. You're talking about cancer. You're talking about other serious, serious health issues. And actually in the 1980s, you had um, the McClelland Royal Commission, which was a, a, a an official inquiry into these tests. And it found that there were long-lasting and, and serious uh, impacts of these tests. And if you think about the servicemen on the ground, they didn't actually know the reason why they were in Australia to do this work. They were just following orders. They prepared the test grounds. They were asked to stay there during the tests, but they didn't have the equipment. They didn't have the personal protection that they required. They actually were asked to look at the mushroom cloud very soon after that initial bright light. So Mm. they, they were there in amongst it all. And if you think about that very, very bright light that we kind of associate with those huge nuclear explosions. That's more to do with the thermonuclear tests, um, those H-bombs. So if you think about Operation Grapple, 
taking place um, in those islands in the Pacific, Christmas Island and Malden Island, um, those people on the ground experienced that huge bright light, even though they were facing away from it with their hands over their eyes, they could see through their hands into their bones. That's how bright that light was that they were experiencing. So if you think about just, just that on its own, but then the radiation fallout, you can, you can see why these inquiries are still ongoing. The research into the effects is still ongoing. So to bring this right up to the present day, obviously it's the 70th anniversary this year of those very first British nuclear tests and the British Nuclear Test Veteran Association, which is the kind of official charity to kind of promote the the recognition and the restitution of those servicemen and the indigenous populations on the ground, um, they are campaigning for proper, you know, recognition from the government and a, a formal apology all of these years later. You know, so... The immediate effects versus the long, long-lasting effects are, are, are just as bad, really. Yeah, and uh, we've we've actually run into one of the guys from the British Nuclear Test Veterans Association several times through the year, Wesley, um, and okay. he's he's mentioned a lot of their work to us as well. And uh, guys out there, if that's something that you want him to kind of investigate or even support, then we'll put a link to the BNTVA in the show notes as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. Imperial War Museums has has a fantastic collection of oral histories as well, captured by the very servicemen who were there. Um, and you can search for these on, on the Imperial War Museums collections online. But to hear it from their own mouths as, as witnesses and also interviewed later in life and, and to understand those comple- complex kind of health issues is a, is a really interesting and, and moving listen. Well, thank you very much, Paris. Thank you very much. I'll confess I never really paid much attention to the British nuclear tests and their aftermath. So thank you very much for shedding a blinding light onto them. Thank you. If you'd like to know more about Paris and the work of both her and IWM, then you can visit the museum in Cambridgeshire uh, and you can check out their website at iwm.org.uk for information for access to that searchable archive of oral histories. Um, and that's from all five Imperial War Museums as well. But once again, Paris, thank you very much for bringing a nuclear rage. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you subscribe to us on Patreon, you're really helping us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, the invite to put questions to future guests, and of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage. But until next time, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.